0: Well, as we uh, just sang, let's turn our attention now to God's Word, uh, His Word full of ancient truths, His Word full of hope, His Word full of life, and uh, may it involve all of that for us as well. Uh, This morning, I made a comment earlier when I was just up here about it being such a beautiful fall morning, and uh, this morning was one of those times walking over here uh, to church, just uh, slowing down. Uh, for a second and taking in the colors and some of those smells of fall and just remind them, wow, this is a, really one of the most wonderful times uh, of the year. I know we look forward and sing of Christmas being the most wonderful time of the year, but uh, for many people, fall is, is a favorite, right? We love fall. Uh, the weather's more mild. It doesn't, we're, you know, we haven't gotten to the harshness of winter yet or the, the heat of summer is passing by. You have all the, the beautiful colors and the smells and, and the flavors, Apple cider people, apple cider donuts. Anybody? Yeah, okay. A couple people, and the rest of you are just lying, so it's okay. Um, that's that's fine. So fall, we love it. We love it, and also. You know, for some people, fall's crazy. You know, I think of, you know, people like Kevin and the rest of the guys that are farming and stuff. This is a crazy time of year. Uh, you look at some of the organizations around us. You go to your orchards, your pumpkin patch, all these things. This their crazy time of year. They host all these fun activities for families and friends to go and do this stuff. And one of those activities that I don't know if, if you guys are into it as much, but um, corn maze, have you ever gone to a corn maze before? kind of fun haunted corn mazes that's a different discussion but just a corn maze great time great time to go and to do that and I remember uh, a few years ago um, Bree and I went with some friends to one of the largest corn mazes around and it was a lot of fun we had a lot of fun working through the corn maze but it was especially cool that year uh, because that year was right after the Cubs won the World Series and uh, so what they did is they made the corn maze cubs themed Um, but they didn't really tell you that before you go in Uh, you can kind of figure it out on the back end of it so i remember when we went you know we're getting ready to enter into the maze right and they have an employee who's there at the front and they offer you to take a little map of the maze so I guess you could find out it's Cubs theme before you go in if you wanted to. But, you know, like the true adventurers, we were like, who takes a map into a corn maze, right? The fun is going into the maze not knowing how to get out of it, right? And so it's, it's you go in and you, you get lost. It's about the adventure and exploring all of the different paths and options that you can take uh, throughout the maze. It's about getting lost for a little bit and finding your way out in time. So we passed. We passed on the map because we wanted to explore, and then we figured, well, if we do get lost, how on earth are you supposed to figure out where you're at once you're in, right? And so we're like, why why bother with the maze? But on the way out we got to see oh here's here's what the maze really looked like and you're like that's so stinking cool and so you can look online and see all kinds of uh, different designs that corn mazes do and all this stuff And really just a, a great and grand design and some of the the beauty of it can't fully be appreciated until you get that drone footage until you step back And see it as a whole. Because sometimes when you're down and you're in the corn. And you're in the field. It can just seem confusing. It can just seem chaotic. If you're honest, there's probably at least one point in time where you start to get a little frustrated. When you're starting to think, "All right, we've been in here long enough. It's time to move on. But we don't know how. Right? And I think what our passage is going to do for us. And in large part, a lot of Ecclesiastes has done. Is looked at life an awful lot like a maze that when you're in the midst of it it seems crazy when you're in the midst of it you may not see how it all works together now for those of us who are adventuresome we may say that's the fun that's the fun of life is not knowing which path to turn down and the fun of life is is the adventure of it all and just trying different things and learning lessons yourself but yet god has given us in his word these ancient words the picture the design that shows this this is what it's all about and that by following this by following his word we can avoid uh, coming up and following some of the dead ends of a maze. So in your bulletins this morning, and for those of you who like to look ahead, on the back of your sermon notes sheet is your own maze. So for those of you who are doodlers and like to doodle while you listen, or maybe doodle instead of listening, then if that's you, wait till later. But uh, you've got a maze that you can do on your own, right? And my guess is that some of you, when you look at mazes like this, when it's on a piece of paper, I'm just gonna take a stab in the dark, that a lot of you probably like to follow the paths and see where they're going to go before you start scribbling everywhere in the maze. Anybody like that? Okay, so how many of you guys like forget it. I'm just going all in. You just start drawing all over. Yeah, so one of you, that's, that seems about right, okay? And so as we look at life, if you were to take that analogy and apply it to life, we, we look at things like the heading here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the heading that says the vanity of wealth and honor. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we agree, We would agree with God's word that there is a vanity, there is a meaninglessness, there is a futility to wealth and honor. But I think if we were to be really vulnerable and really honest, many of us might say, yeah, but I'd like to figure it out myself. Let me take a crack at that and I'll see if I come to the same conclusion. But just like you would look at a map or a a maze like on your piece of paper and follow all of the dead ends and see, okay, is this a viable path? And if you determine it's not, then you're not even going to start going down it. That's what God's Word does for us. I think that's what Solomon is helping us to see today is that here are many dead ends in life. That If he were to view his life as a maze, he would say, I've gone down all the paths. I've explored all the nooks, all the the crannies, and I have found that these paths lead to dead ends. And he's sharing that with us so that those of us, which are most of you, who would look at a maze and say, I don't want to bother going down a a dead end, may look at it and say, okay, I'm going to take his word for it. And as he does it, he's going to bring out not just the dead ends, but he's also going to draw out the route to the good life and he does so in our passage today in ecclesiastes chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 uh, by using a hebrew uh, structure of poetry right and and the the structure of poetry that he uses is called a chiasm now i know for some of you just me mentioning that you're like done out. like I didn't sign up to go to literature class. I thought I was done with that in high school because that's how I am. I'm not one. I I hated in in school going through all the different forms and structures of poetry and trying to figure it all out. So I'll keep it simple for you. To keep it simple uh, what, what Solomon is doing in this structure is he's putting all of these dead ends and they're building up to this one focal point. This one focal idea And then from that focal idea, he's going to work backwards. And so he kind of highlights things. So if you look at our passage today, you're going to see stuff in chapter 5 that it looks like Solomon repeats in chapter 6. Why would he do that? Because it's all converging to this one singular idea. And all of these things that are converging, it's dead end, dead end, dead end, dead end. And it converges to this one focal point being the good life. The good life, and we, we're going to see it uh, come up right at the end of chapter 5. So everything early chapter 5 here, leading up to the end of chapter 5, everything chapter 6 flowing out of it so that we can see these dead ends in contrast with what is the good life? What is the good life? If, if, there, if life is like a maze and it's full of dead ends and, and windy, turny roads that lead to nothing, then how do we navigate it so that we find how God's design truly is meant to be? How do we get that 30,000 foot view that's that, that helps us see things as they are and work through it? So as we turn our attention to God's word, we're going to do it kind of section by section looking at everything. So we're not going to read through it all at once, but we're going to look at all of these different things and look at the dead ends that Solomon speaks of. But before we do, i want to turn our attention to the Lord and invite you to just pray with me before we dive into all of this. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for the beauties of a season like fall where the vibrance of your creation is on display. Bright colors, wonderful smells, all the fun activities, so much to enjoy with a season like this. And Father, we come before you now, not in a special time, but a time that we come to frequently where we open your word to study it. And we ask, Father, your blessing on it That as we look at your words, as we ponder them, as we seek to apply them in our lives, that we would do so by none other than your guidance alone. That, Lord, by following you, that we might see this design for life as you meant it to be. So I pray a blessing and ask for your help for each of us in the moments ahead that we would would devote ourselves to the teaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's, uh, let's look at, uh, you know, get the good feel for what this good life is and see it, we need to see it in its contrast. So let's start by looking at some of these dead ends. And the first one we're going to see is in a pop-up right at the beginning of chapter 5. You look at uh, verses 5 through 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them but this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields and it's tempting and if we're all honest with ourselves especially in a time of year like this where we're coming up on election times and it's easy to look at the officials and look at the governments of life and say there's certainly got to be answer and we talked a little bit about this in chapter 4 but the first dead end that Solomon mentions here in in our passage is the dead end of power, the dead end of power that doesn't actually serve. And so we saw at the beginning of chapter four this corruption, this the oppressed who have nobody to comfort them. And here uh, Solomon kind of brings that back up again, but with a little bit of a different flavor, right? Because in chapter four he's saying, "Look at this corruption! Look at the oppression!" and and they're not being any comfort, and we're lamenting this. We're we're there's something grievous here. And then it seems like uh, here in verses eight and nine he's like. We see it, but don't be so dismayed. Don't be so surprised. Don't be so upset about it. And we're forced to reckon with this idea, this injustice, if you will, the violation of justice and righteousness in the world. But it almost seems like Solomon's uh, advocating this kind of mindset of just shrug your shoulders and go on with life. Because uh, is it really surprising that when you look at places of power, we find corruption? It sounds like, you should, guys, we, we should expect this. Why is your jaw dropping to the floor every time you hear of something like these things? We live in a corruptible world. And for some of us, and I want to be careful in the days that we live in, but some of us look to places like Springfield and we look to places like Washington and that becomes gospel. That hope is found in those places and by who is in authority in those places. And I don't want to diminish the importance or significance of governments, but what the Scriptures have said over and over again is that's a dead end. If that's where we're going to put our hope, and I mean your hope and stake your life on it, then it is a dead end of dead ends. Because it is run by people and there there is wickedness and there is corruption. It doesn't matter who's around. Because people are fallen and prone to sin. And so if we're going to look to those places, if we're going to look to power, then we shouldn't be surprised when corruption comes. And it's an especially grievous thing when we look at something like this because the Scriptures tell us that, biblically speaking, power and authority and government was designed to benefit the peoples. And so he laments, it's seemingly at the beginning here, the oppression of the poor. He laments the violation of justice and righteousness. Because that's not the way it was supposed to be. When God speaks to His people, He speaks of governments that are supposed to look after the poor and the needy. The outcast. We talked just a few weeks ago about treating the outsider like an insider. And that's God's law. But God also, uh, in speaking to His people, when they wanted that, when they wanted uh, the world systems, when they wanted a king, what did He do? He warned them of what? the corruption. Right? You want a king? It's not going to be all hunky-dory. Here's the reality of how it's going to be and he's talking to his people in all of it. So from the beginning, never has the intent been that humanity would place their stake, place their lives on the powers to be. Because the power to be is the Lord himself. So dead end number one, all of this the power that doesn't actually serve. And so if you're looking at the poor and you're looking at the oppressed, and on one hand he's saying, okay, uh, within the the systems that be, that's not very good. That it doesn't bode very well for you to be poor and oppressed. On the flip side, he turns his attention to perhaps the wealthy and those with power. And so he turns his attention uh, to dead end number two, being possessions that don't satisfy. In verse 10, he who loves money, will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When good things increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. The riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, that just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Dead end number two. Possessions that just don't satisfy. You know, they say right now that it's estimated the next lottery jackpot is somewhere in the ballpark of $30 million. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. And I just say that because if I were to pose the question to you that if you came into millions of dollars tomorrow, how would it change your life? Some of you... Put a lot of thought into this. Some of you have answers. Some of you are like, "Dude, I don't, I don't even want to begin to think about it." But here and now, you're probably some some thoughts are flooding your mind. Man, if you came into millions of dollars tomorrow, you're like, "What? Maybe we'd pay off the house, buy a house. Maybe we'd pay off other debt that we have. I know we've got family and friends that could use a little something. We'd be able to bless." Them. We could give a bunch to church and, and other charities that are doing gospel work and the dreams start to flood and maybe you can fund you know, nonprofits and all these different wonderful things. You're like, man, it would be really great to come in to millions of dollars. But would it be all so hunky-dory? I mean, think reality for a minute. What about that friend that's not really a friend that suddenly wants to be a friend? Or that distant family member that you don't really know and you're not really that close and suddenly it seems like they're always around? What about that new house you buy and the, the, the greater payments on it or you know, the, the greater cost to living as goods increase? You know, so does the appetite of those who use them you got more to take care of. Maybe you got landscaping to deal with now. You're paying someone to come do. You've got cleaning crews. And it's like, man, you get all this money. You build it all up for what? Somebody else to enjoy it. Somebody else to come in and take care of it. That's exactly what Solomon's saying here. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Scholars say this is the proverbial, the grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? It would be great. And then you get there and you're like, well, you know, grass is kind of looking the same as it was over there. Maybe even a little bit more patchy. But on the outside, it looks really, really great. And furthermore, Solomon speaks of the security of it all. If you want to place your security in what you've got stored up in the bank, well, it could be that your riches are kept by an owner for his hurt. It could be that all of your riches were lost in a bad venture. It could be that there's not really a whole lot of security in it at all. And it's been interesting for me, because I remember growing up watching sports all the time and watching these professional athletes. And as a kid, I mean, what kid doesn't just dream about making it? You know, you're like... I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a pro athlete and go make all the money. Well, you know what the sad reality is? Especially now as I look at guys, you know, 10 years younger than me going and signing these multi-million dollar contracts. Statistically, 78% of professional athletes go broke within three years of retiring. It's here and gone tomorrow. 78% and you know what every little boy is looking up and saying I want to be I want that but what does it really deliver what security in life what meaning in life does it really offer in the end here today gone tomorrow something not to stake your life on And the reality is, as Solomon calls to mind in verse 17, a picture of one who's lost all of it, right? Here's a man who's lost all of the wealth, all of the possession that he's staked everything on. He's had it all. He's consumed it all. He's hoarded it all. Now it's gone in a bad venture. He's got a son and he can't even leave anything to his son. And Solomon gives a picture in verse 17 of a man who's dead. A dead man walking, right? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Here he's living, but it's like he's a corpse. He's a living, breathing corpse because everything that he made his life about is gone. Fleeting. Vanity. Nothing there. So Solomon says, it's a dead end. I've looked down that path. Wealth seems to promise a lot. Security seems to promise a lot. But in the end, it's not really offering anything. Don't bother going that route. Third dead end. A productivity that doesn't suffice. We're going to jump down uh, to chapter 6, verse 7. We're going to go back and deal with all the rest of that in a little bit. But chapter 6, verse 7, a productivity that doesn't suffice. It says, "...all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite isn't satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? As better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. And this also is vanity and a striving after wind." And here Solomon starts uh, speaking of this appetite. This, uh, and I'm really what I'm not talking about is how much you're going to eat on Thanksgiving this year. If you're already starting to think that way, but the appetite, the desires and passions of the flesh, and, and how this this all you're always left wanting just a little bit more. Never content, never satisfied with where you at. And he says the toil of man is for the mouth. The toil of man is for the appetite. And I remember uh, at a younger age, I'm still pretty young, but at a younger age, kind of reflecting on the. Uh, in my head at the time, the silliness of it all. What's the point? You go and you work a lot to make money so that you can afford a house and food and a car for what? So you can rest and eat and drive to work. <laughs> and it's just this vicious cycle of you work for the things that you need so that you can work, so that you can have the things that you need so you can work. And it's like, what's the point? that's the picture of what solomon's talking about the cyclical nature of things the work is never done it continues on and on farming you guys are gonna finish harvest this year and guess what's gonna come next year harvest again right those of you who work in jobs there's some sort of a cycle you you clean something and guess what needs to be done again tomorrow it needs to be cleaned Uh, you paint something and it needs to be what in a few years paint it again right and so all of these things it's the Cyclical nature of work, the appetite of man never truly, fully, and finally being satisfied. And then, man, it calls to mind when Jesus speaks of coming to Him and being satisfied. Do you remember in John when he talks about uh, to the woman of the well about the living water? Water that you won't thirst again. Water and food that you won't won't be hungry. You will be satisfied in Him. Because in Christ, there is a work, a toil that is already finished. There is rest for the soul. And that's what Solomon says if you were to, to look back Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. He's, if there's one benefit of your work being done, its essence is you get to rest well. A productivity that doesn't suffice. And finally, the dead end of a philosophy that doesn't solve. Verse 10. In verses 10-12, through 12, Solomon presents us with a series of questions, if you will. Only a couple of them are, are formatted for us as questions, but in verse 10 he says, What has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. He says, The, words, the, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what's good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And again, in classic ecclesiastical form, we turn and we're like, wait a minute, didn't we sing a song about words of hope? Words of life? And it's like, is it all just being sucked out right here in Ecclesiastes? Like, that doesn't sound so Hopeful. But here Solomon poses these questions that when you answer these questions, some of them don't even have an answer. And sometimes the answer that you get isn't an answer that you can feel like it really gives a peace to your heart and to your soul. So he starts it off with the first question. In essence being, since what's going to happen is going to happen, then why bother? Right? He says, uh, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. For to them, in their thinking of that day, to be named for something, for someone to be named, it is to be determined, fixed, defined, meaning given to it. So all these things named primarily what? It's known what man is. And Solomon uses this word for man here. You've all heard it before. Adam. Adam literally meaning of the earth and this adam cannot contend with one who's stronger have you ever felt that way where you look at life and you're like if what's going to be is what's going to be then why bother what's the point the answer comes in living with the lord Because God is the one who is defined. God is the one who's bring definition. God is the one who's named. And sometimes we live in in reality as we live in a world right now, uh, there's a lot of changing of definitions. Lots of changing of definitions. But the reality is that changing the definition of something doesn't change the reality of what it is. Changing the definition of things does not excuse you from the consequences of not living in that reality. I remember uh, back when we were talking, John uh, used the illustration, you can choose to believe that you can fly, but if you jumped off the roof of the church, what's going to happen? Reality will smack you in the face in the form of a dark-looking parking lot right below. You can choose to not live in reality, but it does not excuse you from the consequences. So philosophically, in a sense, humanity has the ability to either agree or disagree with God. God. God's the one who's brought definition. Man can choose to disagree, but there's always a consequence for disagreeing with the God who has brought name, definition, and fixing to all things. If what's going to be is what's going to be, then why bother? But we can choose to live in this fairy tale world that at one point, at some point, will smack you across the face with a two-by-four of reality. And that's what Solomon does throughout the whole book. This is reality. What do we do? How do we live in reality? Scripture tells us that when we choose to not live within God's reality, He will allow us to do that. Romans chapter 1. When mankind exchanges the truth of God for a lie and worships the creation rather than the creator, what happens? God will give them over to the desires of the flesh. And each one leading to a destruction. Each one receiving the due penalty for their error. So it's not a, an answer, verse 10, that's just, well, who cares? It's an answer of where am I? And what reality am I living in? It is known what man is, and he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And then it seems that, well, what about the, the sense of reason? Verse 11, that can't we reason about things? Can't we think about things? Is there not room to debate and talk about things? The more words, the more vanity. What's the advantage to man? That, that, yes, there is a place for reason, but reason at the end of the day is not the end-all, be-all. That Don't you ever feel like sometimes the more you hear people talk, the more ludicrous things become? That the more they talk, you're like, would you just shut your mouth? And it's easy at times to look outward with that, but how often is that my own mouth? The more words, the more vanity. And and there's an examination that takes place here that reasoning at the end of the day is not the end all be all. Now, what about? What about things like apologetics? Doesn't God use reasoning to reach people? Absolutely. And a hundred times over. But it is not the reasoning itself that awakens the heart and the soul. It is the work of God. It's the same reason that everybody can look at the same facts and come to different conclusions. Apart from the work of God, what is reasoning? Without the life-giving breath of God, will people still not bang their heads against a wall? We need the Lord. And to live life void of God... Just live life with more words, more vanity. And so we seek him in all things. Question three what's good for us? I know many of us who have had or have or are about to have kids, it might be easy to look at and say, I, I know, I can look at my two year old and he doesn't know what's good for him. I can tell him he needs to eat his dinner and he needs to take a rest, and what does he do? Sometimes. No! No! And it's like, dude, you're two. You don't even know what's good for you yet. You need somebody to tell you what's good for you. And then we can lull ourselves into this thinking that as adults, we've determined what's good for us. Have we? Truly? I know for me, I still need somebody to tell me what's good for me. I'm not talking about Bree, for those of you going to make points. I need somebody to tell me what's good for me. And sometimes hearing and knowing what's good for me leaves me wanting to say, no, I don't want it. Sometimes what's good for us is not always what we want. In the day and age we live in, we confuse that. That is a blurred line. Desire and necessity. Want and need. We need somebody to speak into our lives. Say, this is what you need. Even when it leaves us kicking and screaming, I don't want that. Can't we be thankful that God does? That He disciplines us even when we don't want it? That He tells us what the truth is, who we are, who He is, He doesn't leave us high and dry question four who knows what tomorrow holds you can plan you can predict but you can't know for sure and all of these questions that he poses here at the end as if the answer to them yes there's, there's truth and there's you can look in the context of the scriptures and you can find answers but even as Solomon looks at them he's like for the philosopher in our midst it doesn't solve life as itself you can think, you can reason, yet I can't fully understand. I can't fully live the good life just on thinking. I mean, early in the whole book, he said, the more wisdom, the more what? Trouble, the more vexation, the more, the more you know, the worse things get. And all of us can think back to a day when we were children and we didn't know anything left from right in the world going on and we loved life and you grow up and you're like, wow, the world's kind of broken. Why? Because you understand And so Solomon's saying, philosophy in and of itself is not the solution that we oftentimes think it is. Because we live in a world where there's all sorts of philosophy, all sorts of answers. You can go online and find anybody who's going to tell you anything that you want to hear. You you want to believe something? You can find it. How do you determine what's true? How do you filter it? How do you wrestle with things? Where do you look for truth and answers in a world that will give you whatever you want? It's a dead-end street. So if power and possessions and productivity and philosophy all in the end of themselves are dead-end routes to happiness, enjoyment, contentment, satisfaction in life, then where's the good? Where's the hope? Sandwich right in the middle of all of this so that it would stick out like like a sore thumb or like a beam in the night. You guys ever remember? I remember as a kid uh, looking out into the night sky, and you'd see those uh, beams of light that would always move around. Anybody else? No? Nobody? Okay, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? I remember as a kid, I'm like, wow, something's going on. I don't know what it is. My six-year-old self, what are the lights for? But it drew my attention. In my gaze. And that's what Solomon's doing here in the middle of this whole thing. It's like in the midst of the darkness. In the midst of the vanity of things. This beam and glimmer of light. So it would be like, whoa! There it is! So of all these things, vanity. The end of chapter 5. Behold! What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God's given him, for this is his lot. and almost, It almost seems, if you only take that verse, like Solomon's saying, just make the most of it. Yeah, reality, life sucks. You might as well just make the most of what you got. But he brings in more. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and, receive, and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And Solomon tells us, look, all of these things, the dead ends. And he's given us, if you will, a maze that has the right route and path all throughout so you can see it and you can follow it and avoid those dead ends. And that right path leads to and through and for and with God and Him alone. That it involves these other paths, right? He, he speaks of the work. He speaks of, of the, the, the possessions. He speaks of the power. But what In themselves, they're empty to bring enjoyment. Because he says in verse 19, what? Because God has given power to enjoy them. And so we have to find and follow the proper guidance in all of this because it's not that all the other things are bad in and of themselves. Oftentimes they are what we would call amoral. They're neither good nor bad, they just are. But in and of themselves, they just don't deliver. So Warren Weersby says, yeah, it's good to have the things that money can buy, provided that you don't lose the things that money can't buy. That's what Solomon's saying. Fine, have these things, but don't make them what they aren't supposed to be. So please avoid the dead ends. Follow the path that God's laid out. And that path... First and foremost is to learn to appreciate the gifts of God. Learn to appreciate the gifts of God. And that's the beauty of verse 19. And the missing piece, I think, in all of this. That the power to appreciate the gifts from God. The ability to appreciate the gifts of God is a gift of God. So we can look at people who seemingly have it all but yet have nothing. They can be rich and yet be so poor because the ability to enjoy it comes from Him. So is it a matter is finding enjoyment in life simply a means of changing your attitude? Is it just about shifting your perspective on things a little bit? I think the answer is more than that. Because, in and of ourselves, the scriptures through and through, we are corrupt to our inner core. God gives the ability, God is the one who transforms, God is the one who gives all good gifts. So, look at the beginning of chapter 6. There is an evil. Translate the word evil, another word might be something that is incredibly displeasing to the human eye. There's something displeasing to the human eye that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Brutal. Brutal reality to live in. And so he speaks in verse 3 and following with this kind of sense of over-exaggeration, if you will. Uh, You you notice he says, if a man fathers a hundred children, I I don't desire to father a hundred children. I don't know many who do desire to father a hundred children. But the exaggeration is that to father many children was certainly, certainly a sign of honor, of favor, of blessing in their culture. So the exaggeration is, man, if you've got it all, if you live a long and full life, but your soul's not satisfied, you have no burial, the end of chapter or verse 3, he uses very strong picture. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. And that's uncomfortable. But I don't think the reality of what Solomon is saying is he's trying to be insensitive to the pain and grief that comes with a stillborn child and the horror of it. I think he's building on that. If we in our hearts and our souls recognize how brutal that is, then how horrible must it be for a person to live this whole life and have everything and not be able to enjoy it? Many people think Solomon's reflecting on his own life. He's looking at himself, that he's the one who's worse off. If you want to look it up later. Write down the, the reference: Second Chronicles chapter one, and go read uh, verses twelve through uh, seven through twelve. It's the the time in which Solomon speaks with God, and God says, "Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you." And Solomon says, "Give me wisdom." And then God says, "What?" Since you didn't ask for everything else, I'm not only going to just give you wisdom, but I will give you, and it's the same exact things that are mentioned here, wealth, possessions, and honor. So a lot of people say, man, Solomon perhaps is looking at his own life as one who has it all yet can't, can't enjoy it. And we talked about this in our small groups this week. And when we got a little real about it, we realized that a lot of us have experienced something like this, at least to a degree, right? Having something that we can't enjoy. And we talked about, you know, gifts that were out of season. We talked about, you know, the, some experiences or blessings in life that just you couldn't appreciate it because you didn't have the perspective uh, at the time. You know, and so we've, we've had these circumstances. We're like, yeah, there's something. And it made me kind of think back to a couple years ago uh, having COVID, Right, and I lost the ta- the ability to taste and to smell, <laughs> and you know how brutal it was to look at this plate of really delicious food, and it's nothing, and like it robbed the whole joy of eating, so that eating kind of just became this like <laughs> you do it because you have to, but where's the fun? God's the one who gives the ability to enjoy things. So Solomon's please, yeah, appreciate the gifts of God, but more than that, we need to learn to just, we need to learn to adore the giver, not the gifts. It's not just about the circumstances. It's not just about the things. It's about God. If you take Him out of the equation, then you are in an entirely dead-end maze. There is no path out there is no solution to the good life because all is vanity and the struggle that we have to deal with is learning to appreciate the things that god has given us without turning them into worship and beginning to worship them rather than the one who gave them so you start to ask the question well how do you know how do i know if i'm adoring god and not just the gifts that he gives how do I know that I, I, I'm actually appreciating who God is and He is the, the treasure of my heart and my, and my life and not just what He can give me? And I'm not just viewing God as a means to an end. that I'm trying to manipulate God into somehow giving me more and more. that I'm not becoming a proponent of the prosperity gospel or any of those things. I want to offer a series of tasks that you can take just within your own examination, looking at your heart and bring God into it. These tests involve your head, your heart, and your hands, all right? Because every pastoral thing has to start with the same letter. Your head, your heart, and your hands. Okay, and there's a couple of questions. Number one, am I glorifying God with the gifts that he has given me? Am I glorifying God with the gifts that he's given me? And you start to take stock of your life and examine how you are using and utilizing those gifts. Is it to build your own kingdom, as big or small as it may be? Or are you utilizing all those things to bring glory to God? What is your motivation? What is your pursuit? Is it for you or is it for Him? You have to test with your heart. In my heart, am I grateful for the things that God's given me? Or do you find yourself always just wanting a little bit more or you can't wait for that next purchase or that next move in life that next promotion that next you fill in the blank and so you've checked one thing off the list and now you're waiting for the next opportunity and and we don't learn to be grateful with where we're at in life because when we're dissatisfied with the gifts that god's given us perhaps it's a sign for us that we've come to adore the gifts more than the giver of the gifts am i grateful and finally, with your hands, am I being generous with what God's given me? Am I being generous with what God's given me? And I'm uh, reading right now about Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. And um, if you don't know the story of The Hobbit, it's the story of uh, a, or a hobbit, Bilbo, who goes with dwarves back to their lonely mountain to do what? Tolkien fans, what are they doing? No Tolkien fans in the room. Bill, come on. <laughs> so in the Hobbit, they're going back, and the dwarves are going back to their place to recapture the wealth of their former days, right? That's been taken from them by this evil dragon Smaug, right? And so here there's this, this whole journey in this beautiful book, right? Uh, but what happened behind the scenes of it all is that the, the dwarves became so greedy that they stored up for themselves and heaped up these great measures of wealth and gold and silver and gems and ruby, all these different things, and they heaped it up, and and Tolkien in the book says, dragons love that, and they'll come and steal it. And I think it's just this great picture, if you will, of, of what are we building you know, in some ways, do we have the attitude of the dwarves there where it's like, man, just, just get a, bake the pile a little bit bigger. Heap it up, you know, store it, find a, a safe place to set aside so no evil dragon can come in and steal my pile of wealth. Or is it a question of are we open-handed with these things? Open-handed with the gifts that God's given. The question of hoarding versus giving. And to be learn to be generous with these things because if we understand in the heart of our hearts that all that we have in life, even the ability to enjoy it, is a gift from God, then should we not hold it all open-handed? Lord, you have given. It is yours, and I am just a steward of it. Am I being generous with the gifts that God's given? Your head, your heart, and your hands. And I'll close with this quote. From, again from Warren Weersby because I think he sums all things up really well. He says that if we focus more on the gifts than on the giver, then we are guilty of idolatry. If we accept his gifts but complain about them, we're guilty of ingratitude. That if we hoard his gifts and will not share them with others, we're guilty of indulgence. But if we yield to his will, And use what he gives us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and be satisfied. It's all to, from, and for him, not me and not you. What place have you given wealth and possession and honor in your life?